welcome to another episode of Consumer, the European podcast of the Consumer Choice Center. This is episode 83 on August 11, 2022. My guest this week is Tom Spencer. He's the chief organizer of the London New Liberals. We'll be talking about the leadership race in the British Conservative Party between Liz Truss and Rishi Sunak. You can listen to the entire exchange at the end of this episode. Also in this episode, Fred Roder joins us to rant about his holidays in Germany and Ukraine, Estonia and Finland argue for a ban on all Russians from traveling to Europe. So let's get started. So I wanted to start first with this story. President Zelensky of Ukraine has asked European counterparts to ban uh, all uh, visas uh, being issued and also those who have already been issued uh, for Russian citizens to travel uh, to the European Union. I think this is specifically for the Schengen area. And uh, and other countries are now following suit. So there have been conversations in Finland already started by the opposition a Conservative Party. So let's listen in to Euronews. Buses of Russian tourists stream into Finland at the Noyamar border crossing in the country's southeast. Some hoping to enjoy the peaceful Finnish summer and others planning to travel further into Europe. But many Finns are unhappy with the situation and the thought of Russians enjoying a Finnish summer while Ukrainians suffer under a brutal invasion, has been met with indignation. Ukrainian citizens are being killed, civilians, women and children in Ukraine. And then on the other hand, Russian citizens are on holiday in the EU. I think that this is an unbearable situation. As an act of solidarity with Ukraine, Finland's Conservative Opposition Party proposed a halt to new tourist visas for Russians this week. The policy appears to have parliamentary backing. But for some, Russian tourists are an important source of income for Finnish border towns. I think this is the the most absurd uh, uh, idea which they have because, uh, I mean, what, what they gain from isolating uh, the normal Russian citizens who, who doesn't have any anything to do with the decision with the polit- political decisions of the of the leaders in in Russia. Russia lifted COVID travel restrictions on July 15th. Consequently, Russian tourists heading to Finland has steadily increased. But this may soon change. I'd be very, very sad <laughs> and disappointed. Because uh, really, I, li- I, I really like Finland and I like uh, resting here. And uh, this is a wonderful country and nature and lakes. And uh, I'll be disappointed. Finland issued over 10,000 new visas to Russians in July according to local media reports. And this is in addition to the 100,000 existing visas, which makes imposing travel restrictions more complicated. So out of Ukraine, President Zelensky was quoted in the media as saying that Russians should be forced to, quote, live in their own world until they change their philosophy. He also says, whichever kind of Russian make them go to Russia. And then also continues, they'll say, this war has nothing to do with us. The whole population can't be held responsible, can it? It can. The population picked this government and they're not fighting it, not arguing with it, not shouting at it. So Estonian Prime Minister Kaja Kallas tweeted on Tuesday in a gesture of obvious support to Zelensky, writes Euronews, and said in her tweet, quote, Visiting Europe is a privilege, not a human right. Air traffic with Russia is closed. While Schengen countries issue visas, Russia's neighbors bear the burden. It's time to stop tourism from Russia, she wrote. And her Finnish counterpart, Sanna Marin, Prime Minister of uh, Finland, said in a TV interview that it, quote, is not right that while Russia is waging an aggressive, brutal war of aggression in Europe, Russians can live a normal life, travel in Europe, be tourists. Uh, Former 
Russian Prime Minister Dmitry Medvedev has called Kalas a Nazi for doing that. I'm not entirely sure that's quite the right word, especially coming from a high official uh, of Russia. Uh, but also the entire conversation is interesting because, I mean, Estonia and Finland can already cancel existing tourist visas and not issue new ones. But it's also for the entire Schengen area, the question of um, how do people, uh, how will Russians be allowed to to enter and leave the area? There are no direct flights right now. However, Russians are able to get to the Schengen area uh, via places like Belgrade or Istanbul. And so the conversation of whether to sanction individual citizens here is interesting. Uh, there have already been considerable uh, sanctions imposed through the fact that um, because Russian banks are not allowed anymore on the SWIFT interbank system, which means that a lot of uh, Russian residents in Europe do not have access to their, to their bank accounts. Um, and, and this would specifically apply to, to tourists. Now, as the holiday season is going to its end, it feels a bit like this is a bit of a performative action at the end of the holidays when the money has already been made off the tourists, because I don't expect the decision to be made on this anytime soon, especially not by the end of this month. Um, but also the question really remains here is to, to, to what extent is this effective? Um, it's sort of balancing act between how to um, uh, how to sanction individual Russian citizens. So the, the Zelensky argument here is that you voted for the government, you supported this government, and you're not shouting at it uh, sufficiently. To what extent the citizens of Russia should be expected to, uh, to, 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 to show opposition when that is clearly not a very safe thing to do in that country. Um, so a lot of considerations here, and I'm kind of curious what you think. If you have any thoughts on this, you can email me, um, bill at consumerchoicecenter.org. And uh, I'd be uh, I'd be very interested to see um, what your views are on on the matter. Should Russian citizens be can be allowed to uh, to enter the Schengen area as tourists on a visa? Next up, we have Fred Roder joining the podcast to rant about Germany. And uh, well, I mean, there's nothing else I can say. He says it best himself. All right, so Fred, you are currently on holidays, but it turns out that opposed to the country you actually want to go to, you ended up in the 1980s. So uh, we wanted to hear you rant a bit about your destination. Tell us, what's your experience being back on the uh, old continent? Yes, Bill. Greetings from my former home, Berlin, which I left about five years ago. And I can tell you things have changed here. Um, it looks that the city of Berlin built a slow motion time machine, which keeps moving Berlin back to the past. Um, I can give you just a handful of examples. As a young, a new parent, I'm used to most cities I am just to call a specific Uber family, which comes with a child seat, a child car seat. Um, that is not possible here. So we quickly had to order uh, one on Amazon and move it from taxi to taxi we use. Uh, which is uh, very cumbersome and usually taxi drivers have no idea how to install these seats. They think they're magic devices, um, which only exist in suburbs, um, which is sometimes a bit frustrating when you're holding a child at the same time have to kind of install this car seat because the taxi driver can't do neither either. Um, so that this is just one example, but then it's still, you know, I knew always Berlin was very cash-based. It was always a bit challenging to use credit cards or debit cards. But even my former go-to coffee shop, which only accepted the German EC card, this your check card, um, um, or whatever EC stands for, now they actually have changed their policy. They don't accept credit cards anymore. They never accepted them, but now they also stopped accepting EC cards. So it's now cash, cash only, which is just 
moving from the 90s to the 80s. And um, I mean, other things, you know, you can basically sometimes I really wonder if like places like Berlin or Germany in general live in borrowed time. Everyone feels that they're so prosperous and wealthy. But then, you know, I took a long distance train and the first thing the conductor did was like barking at me. Um, but then when you get off the train, the only thing you see is like the only elevator they have at the Berlin main train station, that platform doesn't work. And probably it stopped working like weeks or months ago and no one is, has the agency or the, the self-motivation to maybe fix it. I mean, you know, there are people who fix elevators. So why is this elevator not working? Like, it's like Germany's flagship train. You take the ICE and nothing works. And the train drives into the train station while driving in there. Tell you, oh, by the way, today every wagon, every compartment is uh, on the other side of what we told you. So, like, you have 700 people hectically running across the train station or the, the platform. And that's just all guys, we have technology and we have companies that solved all of these things. But because of corporatism and government intervention and there's some monopolies uh, and just the feeling that they can always have Deutsche Telekom or Siemens solving their tech problems, which of course are not the most innovative companies in the world. Just kind of, yeah, it feels like throwback Thursday back to the early 90s or something like this when these technologies were actually good. Yeah, it seems like a mix of um, lack of culture and customer service and then also the sort of the local authorities not necessarily being like okay we want a certain standard you know for, for the things that are run by the government you would i mean everything from the escalator not working to i mean i lived in brussels for a while and that was like a constant problem on top of the fact that i mean you do pay a lot for these tickets i mean right now everybody just pays nine euros for the regional train so nobody has a sense of paying for anything but i mean the regular tickets usually you know, you're supposed to cover the cost there and then the services, there's sort of an, an expectation that the services are supposed to work. Um, is it also yeah, it's some... So, sorry, yeah. just on that. Also, um, I mean, I'm traveling with family and I booked early, so I got like fairly affordable first class tickets for the train. Um, but then they used to serve like coffee or you could order, you still have to pay for it. And this time, this train from like Hamburg to Berlin, it's a two-hour train and no one even came and asked you if you want to buy something. So the state monopolist train company is not even interested in this auxiliary revenue. Ah, and that's probably could be, I mean, just for me, I was really thirsty because I had to run through the train with two suitcases and the baby um, because I was on the wrong side of the platform. Um, I would have had like a couple of Diet Cokes, coffees, and probably one or two beers at the end, or even a snack. So, you know, it's like these monopolist companies, government owned actually, they, they miss out on so much auxiliary revenue where actually the margins are really high because they don't care. You know, they, they, they lose money every year. The government or taxpayer just bails them out. And people who work, they also don't feel that they have to provide any polite customer service to you because you're not their employer. That's, that's exactly right. I think, and, and I wanted to add one last point on this because apart from the rambling, I think there's an underlying point here, which is sort of the complacency that we see in Europe and also this level that I sometimes get with people, this level of arrogance that, I mean, where else in the world can it possibly be better? So as somebody who's left Europe for a different destination, what message do you have to people who say like, oh, come on, I mean, Berlin is sort of the epitome of technology and, and you know, where, else, where could services possibly be better? Um basically anywhere east of Istanbul. <laughs> no, I mean, so, I mean, if you look at just Asian cities and how well-run train systems in Japan or Korea are, or even a lot of technology in China, I mean, China has its own problems, but at least the 
quick ad adaptation to technology and and keeping places clean. I mean, here also trash cans at the main train station, the capital city. It's 3 p.m. You're there, and the trash cans are already like overcrowded with garbage, and there's no one who cleans them. There's still like more than two million unemployed people in this country. So you would think, you know, it's I mean, or have robots doing it or whatever. Uh, um, but it's it's like just like a decay, and people still think it's like they're the center of, of wealth and innovation because there are some uh, e-commerce startups in Berlin that sell you uh, hipster shoes, and they think that's kind of innovation. A lot of work to do for the people in Germany to uh, clean up the mess. Anyway, thanks, Fred. Appreciate and it. And the streets. And then last but not least, our guest of the week, Tom Spencer. He's the chief organizer of the London New Liberals. We're talking about the leadership race in the British Conservative Party after uh, Boris Johnson, Prime Minister, has resigned. And now it's down to Liz Truss and Rishi Sunak. It's about a month to go, as far as I know. And the members of the Conservative Party will be allowed to vote. And so, uh, yeah, let's listen in to, to Tom Spencer, who explained to us a bit the implications of this vote, who the candidates are, and uh, what's at stake here. So, Tom, thank you for being back on the Consumer Podcast. Um, I think everybody is looking at the UK right now with some um, uh, interest because uh, I think the rest of the continent in Europe it has a hard time understanding exactly why uh, the system is so complicated. There is uh, the Boris Johnson's resignation means that the Conservative Party gets to pick a new leader who will then become prime minister. But that process is a bit elongated. So can you just enlighten us just a little bit uh, how exactly that worked? There were several stages and we're now sort of in the last stage of that decision-making process. But just for the listeners who don't know, just explain that briefly. Uh, sure. So it, it kind of ex exists uh, because we have quite a strange way the constitution is designed in that the prime minister is sort of just elected from from parliament so there's no real written down law saying how they have to, uh, to be elected but as a convention it tends to be that whoever can command the majority of parliament at a given time become the prime minister so these days that tend to be sorted out by the parties themselves the way the tories do it is um of the mps they can uh, nominate themselves to be uh, prime minister and effectively if they get enough votes from MPs they can go through to the next round and at each stage uh, a certain number are eliminated so eventually when you get down to the final two that goes to the mass membership of the uh, Conservative Party which is the stage we're at now so we're left with just um, Liz Truss, who's the Foreign Secretary, and Rishi Sunak, who's the Chancellor of the Exchequer. And for the European, uh, continental European listeners, the Chancellor of the Exchequer is uh, the Treasury. That's sort of the finance uh, minister, if I'm, if I'm uh, understanding that correctly. Yeah, so he's sort of got um, a, a few functions. It's um, the Treasury is sort of the massive body in the British government. So he uh, controls the budget. He is responsible for economic growth. He basically controls the entire fiscal direction of the country right and he uh he he came to prominence during uh during the last government um also with 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 several uh ideas also to get the country back on track i remember these these uh was it like vouchers like incentivizing people to go and get uh the the businesses back up and running and then people were told to uh, that, that that lockdowns were coming back so there was a bit of confusion over there who exactly is rishi sunak anyway because up until a couple of years ago none of us knew exactly who he was and now now he's uh, he could potentially become prime minister so who is this person 
just he's someone who's only really emerged into mainstream uh, politics very recently. He was only actually elected an MP for the first time in 2015. Um, his background is largely in uh, finance after uh, graduating in uh, philosophy, politics and economics from Oxford. He worked for Goldman Sachs for a time and then went into hedge funds. But after becoming elected, he almost instantly uh, achieved quite high uh, profile roles. So within three years, he was the Undersecretary of State for Local Government, then immediately being promoted to Chief Secretary of the Treasury, and then immediately after that to uh, Chancellor. So for someone who's only been in Parliament for a very short time, he's really risen to the highest scale possible, um, faster than anyone I, I can probably uh, recall. Um, as Chancellor, he's sort of been extremely impactful as well, because um, it was him sort of who was on TV on almost a daily basis at the start of the uh, pandemic in 2020. He immediately put forward a, um, a bailout of about £330 billion pounds to sort of try and maintain uh, business and th throughout the um, COVID-19 pandemic, he was responsible for plenty of different um, outreach to try and sustain business, to sustain the wealth of the people, and just to try and keep the uh, economy going. Um, probably most prominently would be his furlough scheme. So this was a scheme where um, for people who um, whose job were sort of more likely to be suffered by the uh, pandemic, the, the taxpayer or the government would pay 80% of their, of their of their paycheck if they were not able uh, to work. And then normally the employer would uh, top that up with the remaining uh, 20%. Uh, so this, he would say, and I, I think I broadly agree, kept unemployment broadly pretty low um, in the UK because where, when the taxpayer was there to pay the wage when businesses weren't able to, um, there was simply no need to make people unemployed. Um, so that would probably be his great success. And that's what he would is crediting throughout the um, the leadership election as his reason for um, being a suitable candidate for PM. Now, he got this far. But if I look at the polls within the Conservative Party membership, he doesn't seem to be doing too well, even though he is popular with uh, sort of the, the, the many of the people in the leadership. He doesn't seem to be as popular with the members. Uh, can you can you explain to us why that might be? So I think that probably comes down to his personal philosophy. So although he, as Chancellor, has overseen a massive rise in national debt, that is sort of exceptional one-time debt. He's a firm hawk in terms of his views on debt, and he simply won't cut taxes unless he thinks that can be financed through one way or another. So um, since sort of the pandemic became less of a priority, he's been looking about how to recover back uh, some of the debt and lessen the size of the definite of the uh, deficit and his way of doing that is more centered around um, uh, raising taxes so he's looking to increase uh, corporation tax next year to 25 percent currently it's around 19 percent so that's quite a significant increase um, he is he has increased um, national insurance which is a um, sort of employment tax so that's increased the burden on uh, working uh, people quite significantly. And the Conservatives at the heart, and particularly their uh, membership, are very anti-tax people. They're 
they often see themselves as like the successors of uh, Thatcherism and s simply raising taxes isn't going to make you uh, popular among the membership. So if you look at his polling um, around a year ago, he was actually extremely uh, popular and had there been an election then he would have most likely won. However, because he's had to go and put forward these, um, these taxes to try and lessen the size of the uh, deficit, pretty much all his support has faded, which has only got worse when he was slapped with a fine by the uh, Metropolitan Police for a um, party-related incident. Um, so, so really, the, the timing for him is just, just atrocious. He's had to increase taxes, and now the Tories simply don't like him. Yeah, and his opponent is definitely trying to uh, exploit that list. Trust is accusing uh, Rishi Sunak of, of uh, well, essentially not giving the economy the leeway it needs by raising taxes. And she also plays into this imagery of, uh, of Thatcherism that you were alluding to, uh, even trying to copycat on the outfits there. So is Liz Truss essentially trying to make herself the uh, Margaret Thatcher? Is that is that what she's trying to do uh, for the for the for this leadership election? Uh, I would say it certainly appears that way. Liz um, is quite the eccentric. Um, I think fundamentally, when you get down to her raw policies and raw ideas, um, she would probably align quite closely uh, to me and to many of the listeners of this uh, podcast. She's quite libertarian personally. She stated all, all over the years she wants to reduce the size, size of the state and to sort of unleash the entrepreneurial spirit of Britannia, as she would call it. But I, over the last few years, she has been seen in outfits almost I identical to Thatcher multiple times. And it's it's a very odd thing, I think. And even though I, I think I do have a lot of respect for her personally, I, I do find this whole Thatcher LARP com completely strange. And I, I don't think it's going to convince anyone that she's the success of Thatcher. People think that because they like what she says and and her views, not because she may wear the same blue suit as her or appear on a tank in a similar way to Thatcher did. Um, so it's, it's all very odd and strange from her. Yeah, it is. I mean, she 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 was uh, interesting to me because of uh, when at a time as as uh, secretary for a trade, uh, all these trade deals trying to con to be concluded after after Brexit. That's uh, uh, is of course very important for the UK. Um, uh, you know, expanding international trade and concluding uh, its own trade deals after after Brexit. Um, and the other thing is that, and, and I think that applies to Richard Sunak just as much and to a lot of uh, British politicians, is that they do seem to me as fundamentally awkward. I mean, there's so many moments of like not trying, not finding the door to exit the room. And, you know, that old video of her giving a speech at the, the Conservative Party conference about British cheese needing to be uh, purchased more, people eating black pudding. It's 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 very performative. This entire leadership election is very performative, and and, and what I'm interested in is that this entire appeal to the con to the to the base of the Conservative Party is very specific. Now, then, eventually, if you do become prime minister as as the as the winning candidate, you'll have to appeal to the entire country because eventually there will be elections again, and and the Conservative Party base is very different to the country because there's a there are Labour voters, Labour swing voters, or people who might vote one or the other way to convince. So. Uh, could it be that these candidates, with all their talk about reducing the size of government and trying to be uh, as Margaret Thatcher would have wanted them to be, could actually, you know, um, um, be negative for them in, in, in any upcoming uh, races uh, for the for the for Parliament? 
I would say that's actually quite likely. So I think the fundamental problem is the actual way the Tory party is designed and where the membership comes from. So for example, the average member is a man in their late 50s, about 40% of them are within five years of receiving a pension or are receiving their pension already. Then most, most of them will be in, in the south of England, um, particularly in the home uh, counties. And s simply the way that the people they need to appeal to to win the election aren't the people who um, will actually be the people who will make the big difference at the next election. So it's most likely um, the next election will be next year, May 2023, but there's an option that it could be May 2024. Um, that's only a, a few months away. And I think I read in the paper two or three days ago that the these two uh, candidates have made a combined total of 144 pledges. So they've somehow made, got an average of 72 pledges each, and they've only got a few months left until the next election. Do they have time to actually deliver this? No, no, they don't, because there'll be certain policies which that have been completed from the last parliament, which they'll want to follow through. There'll be things that they prioritise and that will take more time. And, and simply, I think these pledges should be seen more as a prospective manifesto rather than pledges that they actually are going to uh, uh, deliver because doing that is dependent on actually winning the next election which the, the polls indicate it could go either way and most certainly they won't have the 80 plus seat majority they have right now so what i would say is by focusing so much on the base they do risk certainly as as you said alienating the the swing voters which they need particularly in the new seats which turned tory in 2019 the so-called uh red wall of people who traditionally labor voting but switched mostly motivated by labor and an opposition to uh corbynism corbyn is now gone his wing has been pretty much eliminated and brexit is nowhere near the issue as it was in 2019 we've got a deal it's mostly been uh resolved apart from a few little things so really the toys need to provide a reason for those people to continue to vote for them and currently they're just providing good reasons for wealthier people living down south with their own homes and a nice pension to continue to vote Tory but that's that's going to lose a uh, general election so what i would expect is the vast majority of the pledges to be completely abandoned within a month's time not pu publicly but slowly just ignored and hoping that all the membership forget same as uh, boris did when he was running for tory leader and pledged to cut taxes on the middle class which he never did and then we're going to see a whole new load of uh policies designed to actually look at fuel costs which are currently soaring and will likely cause great increases in uh, poverty in the uk and i think they'll also do things like look at the mandate of the uh, Bank of England, something which isn't a very sexy policy. That's not going to get you votes. But with inflation expected to reach 13% this winter, it, it's a necessary thing to look at uh, doing. So I expect all these sort of tax cuts and different spending and different ways, which I think Liz Truss's platform expected to cost about £50 billion. It's not going to happen. We're going to see stuff completely different because the base will change and the people she needs to appeal to will change. So I wouldn't take any of these policies really with that much weight. because They probably won't actually happen. 
Well, that's all very interesting and makes it probably difficult for Conservative Party members to, to, to well, some of them at least, to make an ultimate choice there. So, Tom, I have about two minutes left and I would, I would be curious. So the listeners of this podcast and us at the Consumer Choice Center, we care uh, a lot about international trade, increasing competition, increasing consumer choice. Uh, fiscal discipline is important to us. Uh, and, you know, just at least a divergence from EU rules, especially those that were particularly punitive for consumers and, and restricted their choices, everything from agriculture to, to, to trade and so on. Um, so with that in mind, um, what would you say between the two candidates and taking into account that, as you say, that many of the pledges you expect to be abandoned and changed in, in, in the upcoming election, taking all that into account, who would you say between the two is, from a consumer choice perspective, the more promising candidate? I would say Liz Truss probably aligns closer to the views of this podcast. So she's pledged to scrap the entirety of the European uh, regulations on, on Britain by 2023. Will she do it? Probably not, but I, I assume some will be repealed. Um, most prominently, I think she put a lot of focus on uh, Solvency 2, which um, would which repeal would actually make things quite a lot easier for the British financial sector and the latter consumers downwind of that. Um, she's also done some quite interesting stuff about um, expanding uh, seasonal work seasonal worker visas, which would probably help more European people, particularly in the agricultural trades, uh, come to Britain, which would be sort of mutually beneficial for both blocks. Um, I think you're very, very unlikely to see much from a consumer choice perspective from Rishi Sunak. Um, he's very much the sort of Cameronite conservative. I think we're going to see more of the same from him if he was to be elected, but that's looking unlikely. Liz is a bit of a wild card, so her views do change, and she does. She is very much someone who is determined to win over determined to be always ideologically consistent. So, if it is in her interest to um, boot consumer choice causes, she will do that. And I think it probably is because the Tory party base is becoming more in line with those issues, and probably from a more reactionary perspective than a libertarian one wanting to eliminate sort of nanny state uh, policies. So I would say the median listener of this podcast will probably have more that they like from Liz Truss than Sunak. But I also wouldn't expect uh, the perfect candidate from either. And I would be very skeptical of whatever they announce, especially going forward, because they don't have the time to actually do any of this stuff. Well, fair enough. Thank you, Tom Spencer. Very informative. We learned a lot. So thank you. And we'll we'll definitely have you back on the podcast. Thank you so much. Uh, cheers, Bill. Enjoyed it. And that concludes this week's episode of Consumer. Thank you so much for listening. You can follow Tom Spencer on Twitter at Tom Jack Spencer. And of course, follow the Consumer Choice Center as well at Consumer Choice C. As always, I'm your host, Bill Words. See you Thursday. You have-